You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join us every Monday as we pull back the curtain on Mormon history, culture, and doctrine. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. All right, Bo and Katie, we're on lesson number five in Preach My Gospel. So, so Bo, when you did the missionary lessons, there were six lessons back in the day. That's how old you are. But now, now that now there are only five lessons. And lesson five is is titled Laws and Ordinances. And it's really, would you say it's like a continuation of lesson four? Basically, yeah. I mean, th- this this was kind of like the leftovers lesson where, you know, if if we hadn't covered everything and they they hadn't yet committed to baptism or they had and we needed another week of content or something we would typically cover lesson lesson 5 and and in this lesson it it's to your point it's basically all the leftover laws and commandments and ordinances that we didn't have time to cover in lesson 4 when we talked about the 10 commandments and all the other commandments that Mormons are expected to live yeah it's interesting cuz i'm reading the training manual again we'll put a link to it down below and it, here's what it says. This really jumped out at me. It says, uh, "This I'm presuming that this is spoken to the missionaries who are prepping this, right? Using this as their preparation. Here, here's the instruction. Help people recognize that by keeping God's laws, they will retain a remission of their sins and stay on the pathway to exaltation. Why don't you speak to that first, KD? Because you understand all that so differently now. Yeah, I mean, this is... Um... For a Mormon, this is how they earn their way to exaltation. So this is, like it says, how they retain um, worthiness, how they retain the remission of their sins. They um, they cannot have remission of sins unless they are following the laws and ordinances of the gospel. And how do you how do you understand that now that you're a Christian? Why don't we just cut to the chase before we get into these miscellaneous laws and ordinances? And we'll get to it. We're going to get in the weeds a little bit in today's lesson, but. How, like, how does that, because this is what you would have believed for a long time, and now you understand this differently now that you understand the Bible. Yeah, as a Mormon, I never had a surety of salvation, right? So this makes me really sad, because now as a Christian, I understand that I, I have salvation through believing on Jesus Christ and having faith in Him. So I want to break that down even further because it it says, right, that we need to help people recognize that by keeping God's laws, they will retain a remission of their sins, meaning or inferring that they would lose a remission of their sins if they don't keep God's laws. Essentially saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough for the remission of their sins. That's essentially what that sentence is saying. And it's so backwards. And that's why when we talk about the hamster wheel that we felt like we were in in Mormonism, that's what we're referring to is like this constant effort and work that we had to put in to earn the remission for our sins that Jesus paid for. Does that make sense? And, and hopefully it, it, it helps our listeners kind of get in the mind of, of what it's like as a Mormon. And especially for, for those listening with a Mormon background, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. But it's that's what's backwards about the gospel. I mean, even in the the lesson, <laughs> in the lesson manual and preach my gospel, when we were talking about the gospel, Brian, you even said that they're complicating the gospel, right? Like the gospel is the good news. The gospel is that Jesus died for us. That's the gospel. 
And yet Mormons add all of these laws and ordinances to it, r- requiring us to work for it. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like good news. Well, it's, it's not good news. The idea that I have to retain, that I have to work to retain the remission of my sins, like already, that's not good news. Because I don't know if I'll ever do it. I don't know if I'll ever, you know, am, am I just living, were you guys living in constant fear of, of not retaining it, like not upholding it? Yeah, absolutely. It was constant fear is a great way to put it. I would say guilt and shame <laughs> and like duty is what drove me for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think what isn't Utah like so high on antidepressant mm-hmm. usage? And I I don't know if there's a link to this, but I going out on a limb here, I would say there might be because for me, this was a huge weight that I just never could live up to to what I thought was God's laws and ordinances and I just thought I would never make it. So are we saying are we saying like hey let's not live a godly life? Hey Jesus died for our sins so we get to we get to do whatever we want. Is that the Christian message, Brian? No, absolutely not, but I know that's what Mormons think the Christian message is, right? And and I I get why sometimes they think that because a lot of times Christians do use grace as a license to sin. But that's not the, the gospel message is real simple. Okay, we, the way we can be right with God is by trusting in Jesus fully, the work that he did. That's it. We trust him fully. Now, what happens next is huge. What happens next is now we're set free to live a new life. Now we have the Holy Spirit living in us, moving us to do what, what the Holy Spirit didn't do in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people had the law on the outside. They didn't have the law on the inside. In the New Testament, and for us today, we have the Holy Spirit moving us from the inside out. That's God himself moving us from the inside out so that even the lives that we live, even our ability to keep the laws and the ordinances and commitments, and again, not exactly the ones we're talking about here, but even the ability to do that is from God himself. Anyway, I just thought that was important to, to point that out at the beginning, right? Because as we get into some of the laws and ordinances, um, we, we talk about these things as being... Uh, you know, hard to live up to. It's not that we didn't enjoy our life as Mormons. We, we definitely did, right? But the difference is so freeing when you accept Jesus as your Savior, when you realize he paid the debt you could never pay, no matter how hard you worked. That's just, that's the difference that I want to draw here because we're going to get into a lot of different things. We're going to talk about temples, priests and ordinances. We're going to talk about serving in the church, all this sort of thing, right? And it's just important that we understand kind of the context that the Mormon missionaries are coming at this from uh, compared to like a, a biblical Christianity lens. Okay. One more thing though, before we move on to the, in the lesson, the other thing that jumped out at me from that statement I just read is that this is about staying on the pathway to exaltation. So again, that's not a word that Christians use. That's not a word that we have in the Bible for people. That's a word that we have for God and only God. Anytime you see let's exalt the Lord. It's always about God. It's never about us. So what does that mean that, that this, that this whole lesson is about keeping people on a pathway to exaltation? Yeah. I mean, it Mormons view exaltation is becoming like God or becoming gods themselves. Right. So the, the entire goal of Mormonism is for you and your family to live with God and become God yourself. 
And uh, obviously they, you know, the, the goal is to do all of this stuff so that you can be exalted in the highest degree of celestial glory. So, so the celestial kingdom, everybody talks about like the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, the telestial kingdom as being those three heavens that Mormons talk about. The celestial kingdom actually has levels to it. And exaltation is the highest degree of celestial glory, mm. which is where you can eternally progress to become gods, right? So it's not just the celestial kingdom is not full of gods. It's the highest degree of celestial glory. So anyway, that's a bit of random yeah, doctrine no, for you from, from a Mormon's perspective. But but again, that when you ask the question of what do they mean by exaltation, that's what Mormons are talking about here. But you're not gonna you're not gonna get into that. What you just said right there, you're probably not gonna say in your fifth meeting with some, you know, backslidden <laughs> Baptist, right? <laughs> yeah. No, probably not. No. Yeah, because they're going to be like, wait, I, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. And you, and right. part of the goal here is the Mormon missionaries are trying to sound, especially for Christians, they're trying to sound as Christian as possible. It's like Christianity plus. It's like you almost had it, but but this is what you missed, right? Am I get? Is that a good way to summarize the goal of the Mormon missionary? Yeah, you you landed. There's even a subscription model. It's ten percent of your earnings. But uh, no, sorry, bad joke. Okay. Um. Anyway, but yeah, you're right. But it. The goal is to, yeah, come across as Christian as possible, for sure, to, as similar as possible to what they already believe in, and then obviously add in um, the laws and ordinances of the gospel, the, the restoration of the church, and the priesthood authority being required and key to this whole thing. Okay, so yeah, that's where they start. It, and in Bo, there's, there's about five or six little topics here. So is the idea that you go and you... You're not going to probably cover each of these in order. You're just going to cover whatever, maybe whatever the person is is needing at the moment. Yeah. So when we would teach this lesson as missionaries, we would kind of cherry pick based on what the investigator okay. needed at that time. So typically we would cover a bit about laws and ordinances and sort of give a precursor to the temple. Uh, but because you can't really talk about what goes on in the temple, mm -hmm. it's very, very vague. Um basically just you refer to it as the house of the Lord and you leave it at that. Okay. But you start with priesthoods and organizations and we've talked about this before, but let's just do a quick little summary. There's two types of priesthood, Aaronic and Melchizedek. Why do Mormons have priests and Christians don't? Well, I guess, you know, Catholics do, but it's not at all the same thing. In Mormonism, it's like an, it, you could be a priest at what age? 12, 12 years old? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 12. Yeah, I was a priest at 12 years old. So, so you were a 12-year-old priest. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. When we say priest, there's a deacon, teacher, and priest. Those are the offices in the Aaronic priesthood. So I held the priesthood at 12 years old, but I was a deacon in the in the priesthood. Yeah. Got it. But it's called holding the priesthood. So there's right now, as we speak, there are hundreds of thousands of 12-year-old boys walking around thinking that they hold some special priesthood. Yeah, totally. And and that's what that's exactly what you're taught, right? That you have the power of God entrusted in you uh and that you have a duty to uphold as as a priesthood bearer, for sure. Okay, I so I had a missionary years ago when we first moved to Utah, we had mis sister missionaries come. I think I've told this story before, but in the context of this I've got to tell it again. And Bo, you need to interpret this for me. So these sister missionaries, they were so sweet, and they brought over the the mission president or something like that because we were a tough case, you know. So they're like, can we bring over our mission president? So he comes over with them. 
they were so sweet and kind and gracious. He was kind of an obnoxious, arrogant jerk. But then he, he no joke, he leaves. It was great. The girls, the sisters tried to kind of smooth it over a little bit because they could tell it was getting awkward. And I'm not saying I wasn't, I might have possibly egged him on. Okay. I'll just say that. <laughs> okay. So I'm not, I'm not saying I might not have been a little bit of a jerk myself. Okay. But here's what happened next. We get a, we get an anonymous letter, uns, uns, no stamp or anything. So it was clearly someone from the neighborhood and our, this guy was from the neighborhood and we opened the letter and basically it said, an eight-year-old in our church has more authority than you do. Because I had told them that I was here to plant a church, that I have a seminary degree, and that, I, that I'd come out to be a church planner. And that was his response. And the girls were mortified when I shared the letter with them. They were mortified. What was he talking about? Was he talking about some kind of priesthood? Yeah, I, I don't think you've ever told me that story. That is wild. <laughs> And I can totally see a mission president doing that, right? Like they're they're trying to defend their mission, right? Their turf. Right. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, if if he said a twelve year old in our church, that would be one thing. He'd be talking about the priesthood. If he said yeah. eight year old, then then he's, he's what he's really probably talking about is just membership in the church, membership, right? Yeah. Baptism, yeah. But but again, the the priesthood. I think that the point of this, right, is like. Yeah, a 12-year-old, a Mormon would view it as a 12-year-old has more authority than any pastor in any church in the world, for sure. Yeah, I'll have to go back. I wonder, maybe it, maybe it was 12-year-old, maybe it wasn't, because he was talking about authority, so it would make more sense that he said a 12-year-old. But, but again, I just want our listeners to, th to hear that, that that's how Mormons think. That's how these missionaries think when they come to your door that they have this authority. They've been told that these missionaries are 18 or 19 years old. They've been told they they've held this priesthood authority for 6 or 7 years by the time they're knocking on your door. Again, it's a made up thing. I I think we can fairly say that. It's not a biblical concept, but it's so clearly like at the root of everything that's going on here, right? Because with the the priesthood was all about restoring here's that word again restoring something that was lost from the first century church yeah that's that's the claim right the, the claim is that jesus gave the priesthood authority to his apostles and that those apostles went out with that priesthood authority and preached the gospel right and then when they were killed the priesthood was lost from the earth and it had to be restored to the prophet joseph smith so for almost you know what 1600 1700 years the priesthood was not on the earth essentially is is what mormon's view is on mm -hmm. it you know it's interesting so on my mission that this was the very first thing we did actually all all missionaries when they were dropped off into the mission field they go meet their missionary companion the first thing that we had our missionaries do was go out and the first person you see you needed to invite to be baptized. That was like the challenge, right? That was initiation week for a missionary. So I remember I went out and the first person I saw, I rode my bike up to this lady and I started preaching to her, right? And she was nice enough to listen. And so I was like, all right, here we go. I'm gonna invite her to be baptized. So I invited her to be baptized. And I was this arrogant 19 year old thinking I had the priesthood of God and everybody needed to know it. And she very politely said, hey, thank you so much for that invitation. I've actually already been baptized. And then I said, well, your baptism doesn't count because it wasn't done by the priesthood authority of God. The only authority that God has given to man to act in his name is 
the priesthood that I hold, and I invite you to be baptized by that priesthood. And like, I was so proud of that on my mission, right? And looking back, I'm like, man, what an arrogant jerk I was, you know, like the, this lady was nice enough to listen and polite enough to, to not just listen, but to also just say like, Hey, that's awesome. I've actually already been baptized. I'm a believer in Jesus. And then rather than like appreciate that and appreciate some of the common ground we, we shared, um, I was arrogant enough to tell her that her baptism isn't going to get her into heaven. Right. But again, that's, that's Mormon's claim here. And that's why, you know, when, when we teach about the priesthood on our missions or when we teach about baptism, we're very, missionaries are very um, not aggressive, but authoritative in the way that they speak about it. Is, is that a thing in the ward at the local level? Is there, like, are you being trained? I guess, what would it look like from 12 years old up when you first held the priesthood and then you're moving up through the ranks, you just said within the Aaronic priesthood, is there a sense of, is there a sense of work associated with that? Is there a sense of worthiness associated with that? Or are they just doling that out to every 12-year-old and 13-year-old and 14-year-old? Oh, yeah, there's definitely work and worthiness required to to hold the priesthood, to do things that require priesthood authority. So maybe I'll just kind of describe what it was like growing up uh, as a priesthood holder, right? So I, as a 12-year-old, I had to have a worthiness interview with my bishop, right, where we he went through everything he could with me. And I answered all these questions about my worthiness, about uh, my belief in Jesus, all this stuff. Um, and once I cleared that interview, uh, that's when he gave the, the go ahead that I could be re- receive the priesthood. So my, my, my dad and, you know, some other priesthood holders in the ward um, laid their hands on my head, gave me the priesthood. And, and from then on, I was a priesthood uh, holder, right? So what it looks like for a, for a young man in the Mormon church holding the priesthood is as a deacon, you have the right and authority to pass the sacrament, which is kind of like communion. So we would hand out the bread and the water to the members uh, in the ward. We would also, um, you know, as a, as a teacher, uh, which is the second office in the Aaronic Priesthood, we would go out and, and do home teaching to or, or ministering essentially to our different family, families that we were assigned to. Um, and as a priest, we could baptize. Um, we could, uh, bless the sacrament, um, and we could obviously prepare to serve a mission. And then it, it wasn't until you received the Melchizedek priesthood that you could, that you could go on a mission, go through the temple and, and continue to do all sorts of things. But, but growing up in the church, there was this expectation or a duty that priesthood holders would be the ones to serve, would be the ones to uh, I guess get activated or called upon to you know um, to go give blessings or to go uh, give service or, or whatever the need was. So it made for a busy childhood. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. And what percentage of your buddies held the priesthood? Oh, I mean, almost all of them. So hmm. when I say there's a worthiness interview, I think I think they're pretty chill with that worthiness interview, yeah, you know, yeah. until it until it turns into like mission time. Um, typically they would, they would give you the priesthood regardless. Um, but they would probably start with holding the sacrament from you if you weren't worthy of it sort of a thing. And, and you were doing regular worthiness interviews with your Bishop at this point. Hmm. Um, and, uh, anyway, so yeah, there was a lot of worthiness interviews, uh, testimony meetings. It's a really, it's a busy childhood growing up in the church. You're, you're, you're serving, 
hours every week. You're, you're obviously attending three hours of church. You're, you're home teaching. There's a lot to do. KD, for you as a young woman in the church, was it, was it less, was there less of an expectation? Was it less stressful? Are you having fewer worthiness interviews with the bishop? Yeah, for sure. We did not have as many worthiness interviews for sure. I think there was one when we're eight and then one when we're 12 for the temple. Um, but for women or for young women, I'm older, so I think they've changed things a little bit now, but it was really focused on, um, becoming a wife and a mother. That was the huge focus for, um, women growing up in the church. So less pressure, like, so the next thing in the lesson is missionary work. Is that, do the, do the boys in the church hear that differently? Or, I mean, we're not just even talking about growing up in the church, but just in general, when when you're talking with someone about missionary work, you're talking about what Christians would say, just like sharing your faith with somebody. Is that a good way to say that? Yeah, I think this kind of is what a Mormon would say is every Mormon, every member a missionary. So this is kind of the call for all Mormons to share their faith with people around them. And does that include sharing it with like, like, I don't know what your term is. I think you you had a different term than we do. We would call it a backslidden person. But because in Utah, most especially when you guys were growing up, most people were most people were Mormons. So who are you going to share your faith with, right? So are you sharing your faith with people who haven't been coming for a while to church, that kind of thing? I mean, we were encouraged as young women to to kind of buoy each other up. So we were um, taught to, you know, do Bible study with our friends and um, definitely with our families. And of course, any um, people who were inactive, reaching out to them, especially as a young woman, if they had younger kids, trying to help them uh, come back to the church, inviting them to, if I had friends in a family that was going inactive or was inactive, we would be encouraged to invite our friends to come to church with us um, with or without their parents. And so, yeah, that's kind of what it looked like for young women. I think for young men, um, Bo can speak to this, but I think it definitely came across differently. And now it's a little different because women, young women serve younger than when I was growing up. But for young men, it, it, there was like a laser like focus on this two years that you have to give of your life right after high school. Right. And so hearing, um, about missionary work really comes across to men, I think, in Mormonism as a as a big responsibility and a, a, a big weight. And it was always a way to prepare for your mission. Like, hey, go reach out to brother so-and-so who hasn't been coming to church in a while. The, the, the phrase is less active. So we would we would go to a less active or inactive member's home, invite them to church. We, we would keep tabs on everybody in the ward. Mm-hmm. So as, as part of the priesthood, your job was to keep tabs on every family. So as a deacon's quorum president or teacher's quorum president or the assistant to the bishop in the priest quorum, what I would do is I would make sure that, you know, we, we had our church full. So I would go to every young man's house and make sure that they were coming to church. I would figure out what they were doing at school, all all that stuff to try and keep them um, as active as possible. Uh, And, and also just to keep camaraderie as a quorum or as a group of, of young boys. Right. So yeah, it was, uh, it was busy. It was a lot of fun, you know, um, to like, like I think growing up as a Mormon, I think there are 
there's obviously like the the works and some of the baggage that comes with it, but there, it's also a great community, right? Um, of people that have each other's backs and typically, you know, wants what want what's best for one another, as mm-hmm. long as that means they're coming to church. So right, that right. was the uh, yeah that that was what I think growing up in the church was like for me as well. Now it's interesting because I'm re- I'm reading this handbook for missionaries. And at this point, I'm reading all the scriptures that are related to this. And the most obvious scripture in my mind for missionary work is the the, you know, Great Commission, Matthew 28. But that's not in here. In fact, as I scroll through this lesson, there's very little Bible reference, and there's a ton of references from the other other Mormon scriptures is that do you think that that's intentional that because in the first lesson I noticed there was a lot of scripture a lot of the Bible but now there's not very much Bible yeah in fact I I even might have said this in the first or second lesson of preach my gospel when we were covering it that they'll actually share less and less of the Bible as we go through this thing and more and more of Mormon scriptures because the the goal of this is to get them used to hearing Mormon scripture right. And, and until it becomes like, oh yeah, that's just scripture. That's what it is. So, so absolutely, that's intentional. Uh, that that there's more of the doctrine and covenants in the Book of Mormon being shared, and less of the Bible being shared when when we're in lesson five at this point. Okay. So the next thing in the in the handbook is eternal marriage, and you know this is one that maybe Christians might not even be real clear on. So why don't you guys explain et- what eternal marriage is in Mormonism? And then I'll explain what a more biblical approach to marriage would look like. Sure. Um, this is going to take a while. <laughs> we'll try to be, we'll, we'll try to keep it a tight <laughs> summary of eternal marriage. Yeah. yeah. Um, but basically what I would teach, I guess, let's just go back to like the basics of what I would teach on my mission. Right. Uh, if that works. So, so essentially what I would teach is that, you know, we're all part of God's eternal family. We, we, were, we were sons and daughters of God before this life. We came to earth to get a body, to gain experience. All of this with the intention that God had of us becoming like him. Um, and uh, obviously God put us in these family units because family is the bedrock of society. It's the most important unit, not just in this life, but also in the next. Our families can be together forever. And then I would pause and let that sink in. I'd be like, don't you love your family? Like God wants you to love your family. In fact, God wants that love to exist forever. He wants your family to live together forever and has provided a way for for that to be possible. Um, And as part of that, he wants wants man and woman to be bound together forever in in an eternal marriage. So that's kind of how I would introduce the topic on my mission. I wouldn't go into detail, but I would would tease it out essentially. But in terms of eternal marriage, Katie, how would you kind of explain who ex, we should be explaining this to maybe I mean obviously those with a Mormon background know what we're talking about here but those with a, a Christian background probably don't know what we mean when we say eternal marriage yeah so eternal marriage for a Mormon um, can only be achieved um, by going through the temple and receiving the endowment the initiatory the endowment and then being sealed together for time and all eternity in a Mormon temple and then continually keeping that temple recommend up to date and serving. But what does that, what does that actually mean? So that means that, um, husband and wife will be married in this life and then also be married in the next life. So that marriage is eternal, um, and continues on past death. And the ultimate goal here 
in this eternal marriage is that that husband and wife become gods and then populate planets of their own. That's like the deeper Mormon doctrine behind eternal marriage. And obviously we would not teach that on our mission ever, <laughs> mm. but, but that's part of it for sure. Right. And nor would you touch on the polygamy aspect that, yeah, so men can be sealed to multiple women. Women cannot be sealed to multiple men. Um, they don't, obviously mainstream Mormonism does not practice polygamy now, but it is an eternal concept. Okay, so wait, hold on. I just that was new for some people to have heard. Like that. I said, so, a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, right. So wait, hold on. I wait. I gotta stop you on that one. So right. So most people listening are not fundamentalist Mormons. These are mainline Mormons, mainstream Mormons who grew up in modern Mormonism, like you guys, where you do not practice polygamy. You guys, what, like when you see those polygamy shows, you're. Do you relate to them? Do you say, "Oh, those are Mormons like us"? No, we cringe just like everybody else does, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's, sorry, maybe cringe is the wrong word, but it's, it feels so foreign to any yeah. modern day Mormon, for yeah. sure. But what you just said, Katie, is that you, 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 every Mormon still, is this true that every Mormon recognizes that polygamy in eternity is a thing, just not on this, in this life? Yes. That was one of my big hangups as a teenager, but yeah. So, mm -hmm. so essentially, Brian, while, Mormons don't practice polygamy on earth. Think about all the Mormon prophets and all those Mormons that were married in, a, in the temple to multiple women. Like, how, how do you make sense of all that doctrine that is no longer doctrine, right? Well, you make sense of it by saying, well, they'll, they'll still be married in heaven for eternity, right? Just, just nowadays, it's man and one man, one woman married. So, but, the, but then that the begs the question of like, okay, well, what if my spouse dies, mm. right? And what if I want to get remarried? So there's this whole thing right now in, in Mormon culture where, um, well, I guess, for example, the, uh, the current uh, president of the church has been remarried. So technically, he'll be, you know, in Mormon doctrine, he'll be a polygamist in heaven with multiple wives, his first wife as well as his second wife, right? Whereas if it was the reverse, so, so for example, let's say I pass away and KD gets remarried, right, in the temple again, then she kind of has to like, choose between one husband or the other which no, i would have to yeah yeah i would have to get a temple divorce from you in order to be sealed to my next husband wow wow so wait you'd have to choose that here on earth you're saying is that what you're saying woman, katie yes a woman would have to choose oh wow so not even in, in eternity you're saying hold on oh wait hold on this is man this is a can of worm guys so wait oh, let's say sorry. let's say let's say Bo passed away and you're like, I'm, I want to get remarried to a Mormon in the temple, then they would, they would make you, they would make you. I wouldn't be able to get married in the temple to another Mormon. Until, unless you were unsealed to Bo. Yes. I'd have to be unsealed to Bo to, in order to be, to have a sealing in the temple to my next husband. It, so it gets tricky. And like I said, I, you know, it's, None of this is what we would teach on in the mission field because mm. there's just so many rabbit holes to to chase down. And, wow. and, and yeah. look, uh, the the reality is it's because it's not sound doctrine. It doesn't come from the mm -hmm. Bible, right. and um, that's why there are so many loose ends mm. uh, be, because it's it's confusing doctrine and well, and it's and it's not biblical. But but anyway, the the point that we would try to get to on our mission was like. Don't you love your spouse? Don't you wish you could be mm -hmm. together forever? Well, with God's plan, you can be, right? Like that's the whole 
pitch of Mormonism essentially, but um, but it's flawed and you can see the flaws as you start to think through the polygamy thing or the remarried thing or divorce in this life, but maybe not in the next. So for example, if, if we were to get, if, let's say we're married in the temple, we get a civil divorce, but not a temple divorce. We're going to have to live together for eternity later. Like it's just, there's this whole wow. bag of worms that gets introduced and stresses some people out actually. Okay, so can I just give a simple explanation of a biblical concept? It's so simple. It's kind of like the gospel. It's so so for the for the Mormon listeners who are kind of on the fence. And that, Katie, you said that this was a big one for you. This was one of the maybe the early questions that you had that caused you. I mean, you still were a faithful Mormon for years, but this was one that you still had never resolved, probably. But now, as a Christian, it's it's resolved, right? It's it's simple. Yeah, for sure. This was a huge. Um hang up for me in leaving Mormonism because I desperately wanted to be with my family forever. I desperately wanted that promise. And the only way I knew of was through sealing in the Mormon temple. But at the same time, it was a confusing doctrine and one that rubbed her the wrong way thinking about polygamy in heaven and all this other stuff. So it was like a... like a, a, I don't know, double-edged sword or something, right? It's not, it, it wasn't a comforting doctrine necessarily, but it was the only thing that you knew of. Yeah, it was. And um, th- it, this, was, this was my end goal in, in heaven, right? Was to be with Bo and with my children. That was my, my eternal happiness. That was the plan of happiness that I had been taught. Mm-hmm. But that is not biblical. And, and I guess it's just important to to show where the focus is, right? The focus for, for Katie and myself was on our family. Now, is that a bad focus to have? Absolutely not. That's a wonderful focus, but Jesus was not the focus. And that's, that's the problem that as something as beautiful as a family can become an idol, uh, if we're not placing Jesus first. And so anyway, as we get into the, the biblical concept of eternal family, that's, that's where I think this is all going to make sense for, for listeners. Yeah, it's really simple. Matthew 22, verse 30. This is Jesus speaking. He says, at the resurrection, people, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. That's it. Pretty simple. <laughs> that there's not going to be marriage in heaven. And after listening to your explanation, I, now I understand even more how brilliant Jesus is. That he just simplified all those contingencies that you guys just listed out. There's not going to be marriage. Now, that doesn't mean we won't know our spouses and we won't know our children. There, it, it does, he doesn't say there's no relationship in heaven. He says there's no marriage in heaven. And that completely makes sense. The focus is Jesus and, and marital relationships are unnecessary in heaven because procreation, for among other things, procreation is not going to be a thing anymore in the real heaven. Whereas, again, in the concept of eternal progression and in, in Mormonism, that's like a whole part of it. So for Mormonism, one of the reasons it gets so confusing and convoluted is because the story, the picture at the end of all of all of time isn't that we're worshiping we're worshiping God and he's at the center of it. That's not the picture. The picture is that you're still scrapping and clawing and whichever heaven you made it into, you can still pr- well if you're in the celestial heaven, if you're in the highest heaven like you said, Bo, you can keep progressing to eventually become God yourself and, and then procreate with your wife or wives. So again, it, this is not going to come out in the missionary lesson five. 
this is the deeper doctrine that maybe five or 10 or 15 or 20 years later, the person who joins the Mormon church and gets baptized is all of a sudden learning this stuff. Is that an accurate way to say that? Yeah, no, that's a great way to sum it up for sure. And I, I would agree. I love that Jesus keeps it so simple. Um, but I also want to point out that the Bible actually talks about an eternal family. So, so it's important for listeners to understand that like, yeah, look, while Jesus is very clear about uh, us not uh, being married or, or, or given in marriage, right, in, in heaven, uh, he does actually talk about us becoming part of the family of God. And that's, that's the, the focus is on Jesus, right? Becoming part of Jesus's family, being adopted into his family, having God live in you, becoming the temple of God. Like that's the, that should be the focus rather than something as amazing as, as, as my family and how much I love them. My focus should still be, my higher focus should still be on Jesus. Yeah, that's so good. I love how you explain it. I think you, both of you have a way of explaining it to people coming out of Mormonism or still in Mormonism, because you get it. You're just in this place where you, 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 you understand the biblical way to think about it, but you still so clearly understand the way a Mormon thinks. And that's why I think so many people love this podcast. So thanks for explaining that. So the next thing in the, in this list kind of goes right in order. Now it's going to talk about temples and family history. How are temples related to this whole eternal marriage thing again? Yeah. So obviously a Mormon believes, and, and for anybody that hasn't been in a, a Mormon temple, um, essentially what happens in a Mormon temple is eternal marriages and uh, people receiving endowments, right? And then a bunch of young men and young women being baptized for the dead. <laughs> so that's, that's basically what goes on in a Mormon temple. So uh, yeah, the temple is central to everything Mormons believe in it when, when it comes to eternal progression or exaltation, right? Becoming like God. That's what Mormons are doing in the temple. They are um, being endowed with power. Uh, that's also where they receive their, their garments, like the special underwear that Mormons wear. And then, and then an eternal marriage is kind of the, the last thing that you do in the temple for yourself and uh, obviously with your spouse. Uh, so that's what happened in the temple. And, and it's believed in Mormonism that the temple is the only place where families can be sealed together forever. Yeah. And these ordinances that are done in the temple are the only way to, to receive you know, exaltation, like it spoke to at the beginning of this. And so because of that, Mormons do um, work for the dead in temples. So they, they do ordinances, baptism, ceilings, endowments, and um, initiatories for the deceased. And they are, they are very encouraged to do family history work. That's why Mormons are so into genealogy is because they're very encouraged to do their genealogy, find their ancestors that weren't able to go through the temple, weren't able to receive these ordinances, and to do the ordinances for their family members so that they will all be together in the celestial glory. Yeah. So the, the goal is to like bind your family tree together through temple ordinances. And and so I would when when Katie and I would go to the temple, we, we would go to the temple on date night and stuff like that. Um, and so we would either take names from her family or from my family from way, way back, right. That hadn't had their work done, their temple work done, or we would just go to the temple and they, they obviously have a ton of genealogy work going on in the temple. 
And so they would give us names of, of people they've done research on, and we would do the, the, the temple work for those deceased people. Okay. I'm reading from the manual and it says this, that, so, so church members search for information about their ancestors. Is it like a Google search? Is that what we're talking about? And then they can add the information to the church's database at familysearch.org. So is that, is, is that, is kind of like the Wikipedia for, for family history stuff? Oh yeah. Yeah. So familysearch.org is probably the large, one of the largest databases on earth the, that contains um, family history. If you, if anybody's familiar with Ancestry.com or 23andMe, um, they love uh, FamilySearch.org because FamilySearch.org has done so much work in um, in patching family histories together. But it's a wiki, so you could do the research and then go do baptism for the dead, and then go log into FamilySearch and and then add in that information. Is anybody uh-huh. making sure it's accurate? They are now. With the introduction of like computers and the internet and everything, it's gotten okay. a lot cleaner. Back in the day, uh, people were doing the work over and over for the same person, not realizing it, right? So like I, I was taking Uncle Harry and his name to the temple and not unbeknownst to me, my cousin took Uncle Harry last year. You know, stuff like that used to, used to happen for sure. The records of the church weren't as clean, but nowadays with electronics, with computers and with, with the internet and stuff, it's, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. But I could go, if I'm an, if I'm a, if I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I could go in and log in and I can update somebody's, I could update somebody's database, like a deceased family member, or it's just someone that I'm randomly like a Holocaust person. I could go in there and update that. And then is anybody going to make sure that what I did was accurate? You know how like Wikipedia does like a, yeah, yeah, yeah they, they do. So they have, they have a ton of employees, actually the family search.org does. And they're uh, essentially underwriters that are checking, you know, for, for this information. They, they also require you to upload certain things to prove that it's valid, stuff like that. Okay. So everything you just said right there, is that going to come out in the lesson or only if someone <laughs> really pushes for that? Cause again, that was a little different. That's you, you, you do baptisms for the dead. What the heck? And by the way, we're going to do a whole lesson on that in, in 2024. So listeners hang in there. Cause we're going to do a whole <laughs> lesson on baptism for the dead. But is that some? Is that really even going to come up in lesson five? No, I mean the the point of lesson five here, talking about temples, is just how look. You love your family. God provided a way for your family to be together forever. The temple is the house of God. It's it's where we go to seal our families together forever. You can do your family history work so that those who have died before you that didn't have a knowledge of the gospel can still receive it thanks to you. So it's very like hopeful, right? And and you keep it on that track as you're teaching it. Okay. There's a couple more things here in the lesson that uh, I would say these are the more normal things. So if I'm, if I'm a Mormon missionary, this is probably what I would focus on and not the eternal marriage stuff. If I'm trying to just like make Mormonism seem really normal, because the next one is just service. And basically it's just saying, Hey, when you get baptized, if, and when you get baptized into the church, you're going to get connected into a local ward and then you should serve. You should find a place to serve. Is that a good summary of what this whole section's about? Yeah, and and there's a name for that. Do you know what that name is, Brian? Yes, it's. I'm jealous as a pastor of a church. I'm jealous that I didn't think of this. It's a calling, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a calling. Yeah, that's right. When you receive your calling, then okay. Here's why I'm jealous of it. Because if I could just call up members of my church and say, 
here's where you're serving this year or these next six months, man, would that simplify so many things? If they, if they kind of had to obey me, if I could like pull rank and claim that this was a, a word from the Lord, like almost like at the level of scripture, <laughs> you'd feel guilt. Cause isn't that kind of what it was is you didn't, you wouldn't, it would be very, it would be shameful to turn down a calling. Is that a, is that a, is there a better word for that? No, that's, Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I think it says it here in Preach My Gospel, actually, that, you know, that you're expected to say yes to a calling because it comes directly mm-hmm. from God. Like that's, that's what the missionaries are teaching these investigators here is that, hey, you're expected once you become a member of the church to serve in the church, you're going to receive a calling. And that calling comes from God through a priesthood leader. And uh, while obviously it's a volun- quote unquote, a volunteer job, you, you know, you're expected to accept the calling that comes from God. So Mormons believe that these callings are actually coming through revelation to their priesthood leader. So when I, when I got called as called an elders quorum president or, or a, a ward missionary, all of those came from God through a priesthood leader, essentially is what I believed. So when you're saying no to a, to a calling, the, you know, the, the pressure that you feel is you feel like you're saying no to God. Okay. So there's one more thing in the section that I want to cover. And it's just the the title is, is endure to the end. And this seems to make sense. Like when you think about everything we've been talking about in lesson five, and even back in lesson four, it really is about enduring to the end, right? It, it, it is about, it's about you better stay on the hamster wheel. Yeah, for sure. Um, This is, one of my favorite now things to talk about because as a Mormon, it was exhausting to think about. (laughs) But now I like to talk about it because it's not the same and it's, it's very different as a Christian. Um, enduring to the end for a Mormon is staying on the covenant path, keeping your commitment, continuing to remain worthy getting sealed in the temple, raising children in Mormonism, you know, staying faithful. And just hopefully if you can retain that remission of sins and that worthiness till the end of your life, you might make it, you know, you might make it in there. As a Christian, it looks a lot different and I like it a lot more. It's uh, freeing to believe in Jesus and to have God through his spirit helping me to want to follow him. Yeah. Something is interesting. It says in the manual, it says that, uh, keep on the covenant path. It says that your commitment to follow the savior by making covenants with him and then keeping those covenants will open the door to every spiritual privilege and blessing available to men, women, and children everywhere. So that's like the perfect summation of Mormon doctrine. If there was ever, and this is, that's, from President Russell M. Nelson, the current prophet, uh, Mormon prophet. Like that, that is Mormonism in my mind, right? If you keep your commitments and covenants, then God's going to open the door of every spiritual privilege and blessing. So, so what's missing there is that Jesus is the one, right? So anyway, we don't have to get into that. I feel like I already talked about this, but Jesus should be the center. Jesus should be the center of your life. He should be the center of your worship, should be your your goal. <laughs> and rather than, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm at a loss for words right now. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, the work that you do is not what saves you. 
there, there was no work you could do. Um, Jesus did the work, and all praise and glory should go to him. Not to you for keeping on a covenant path, not to you for keeping your family together. It should go to God and, and, and God alone. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because at the end, the very last um, paragraph in this says, a few members do not endure or remain fully active. However, enduring to the end is a personal responsibility. We work out our own salvation. They quote Philippians 2.12. And we serve and love those whose faith has grown weak through inactivity. So this is what I was talking about at the beginning. This is what makes me sad, right? This is, this is why we as Christians, especially those of us living among Mormons, this is why we need to reach out to them. They are, this is what they believe. This is so sad because they will never, they will, well, some of them believe they will make it, but they, they can't. They believe that it has to be on their own works. It's their, they have to work out their own salvation. Jesus isn't enough for them. And it is just devastating. Yeah, that was well put. So, you know, as a, as a Mormon missionary, uh, we get to the end of this lesson. What, what I would ask you to do is I would say something like, hey, you know, Mr. Brown, will you continue to live the gospel by keeping the baptismal covenants throughout your life? And, and this essentially is my goal as a missionary, right? It's to get somebody baptized and then to have them commit to keeping their baptismal covenants. That's, that's my goal. And again, those baptismal covenants, if they're not kept, what does that person lose? They lose the spirit and then they got to repent and keep the commitments that they made and keep the covenants. And then the spirit comes back and then they sin again. And the spirit leaves. It's like this whole big hamster wheel, like we talked about. So that's, that's what I would be committing them to if I was a missionary. Um, and as a Christian, <laughs> uh, it's a completely different ask, right? When I share the gospel with somebody, my entire goal is just to point him to Jesus uh, and Jesus alone. And when someone accepts Jesus in their life, when someone believes in that moment, they're saved and they become a new creation. They become the temple of God and the Holy Spirit lives in them and moves upon them to do amazing things. And it, over the past year, it's been incredible to see it uh, in my life, in Katie's life, and in a bunch of other people's lives that we've been you know, had the opportunity and, and privilege to meet. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because after studying the Bible for years, teaching seminary for years, I, for some reason, <laughs> I just wanted to add my own work to it, but Jesus is enough and Jesus work is enough. And, uh, so for those listening, I guess my encouragement would be to know that Jesus is enough.
Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we wanna make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org forward slash donate.